Nagel Jackson and Mark Lemos sat down with moderator Mary Robinson for a one-on-one interview in January of 1987. I'm Susan Stroman, a member of Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, and this is Masters of the Stage. This program is produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing. Because this program was not originally intended for broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. As a result, portions of the conversation may have been edited. My name is Mary Robinson, and I'm moderating the panel on running regional theater. And uh, with us here today are Nagel Jackson, uh, who runs the McCarter Theater in Princeton, and Mark Lamas, who runs the Hartford Stage Company in Hartford, Connecticut. Um, And I believe both of you have run regional theaters before as well. Uh, Nagel uh, ran the Milwaukee Rep, and Mark was at the Arizona Theater Company and the California Shakespeare Festival. And since I'm actually not as filled in on all the the background, at least not with Nagel, as I should be, maybe we'll start by just uh, asking how you both came to run the regional theater you're running now and uh, what your background was before that. I am a real regional theater baby, I guess. Uh, I literally grew up with the movement. Uh, I'm from the West Coast, and... um, I uh, began, as lots of other people did, uh, with the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in those very early days when it was a quite a small operation, and um, began as an actor. It never occurred to me that I would uh, direct. I thought that was extremely boring. <laughs> um, then, um, and, and then I began to work as a performer and ended up here in New York doing uh, uh, actually a lot of cabaret work, the Julius Monk shows and all that sort of thing, as a performer. Um, then I was asked to go back to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and um, uh, dear Angus Bomer, the founder of that festival, uh, he called me and said, would you come back and do Benedict in Much Ado? And I said, yes, if you'll let me direct something. And to this day, I don't know where that came from. It just absolutely sprang from my mouth and uh, must have come out of, I guess, I, I think it probably came from just having been in a show for three years, probably. I just knew that there was something else that I wanted to do. So then I um, began, in that way, a fledgling directorial career, and my work there was seen by um, uh, ACT in San Francisco, and I was brought there in those lovely days, that golden era when they had eight staff directors and four associate directors, and um, so I was brought along and hired as an associate director, which meant that I sat in with a lot of wonderful directors and just watched them work, and then the inevitable thing happened. That first season, we did 31 productions in two different theaters. I mean, it would be unheard of nowadays. But And the inevitable thing happened where a director couldn't couldn't make it, and so, okay, Nagel, you, this is your show. And the first show I did for them was um, in white America. This was back in 66 or 67. Um, and then I just continued working up, as it were, in that organization. And then after I'd been doing that for about three years, I decided I wanted to um, freelance a bit, and both my wife and I sort of wanted to get back to the East Coast where we had been and where she was from. And um, en route from the West to the East, I was asked by Milwaukee to come up and interview because they were about to change artistic directorship. And I said, Milwaukee? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I had images of beer and so on. And uh, I went there and... Uh, it, it occurred to me, it's such a naive thought, but it occurred to me in the middle of the interview, hey, 
I could do whatever I wanted to if I had this. I could put on plays that I wanted to do for a long time, like the English mystery plays and so on. And uh, we hit it off very well, and the end result was that uh, after directing a show in Hartford, as a matter of fact, I went to Milwaukee and was there for six years, six very, very happy years in a lovely town. Um, after which we continued our journey east, which had been interrupted for that time. Because I really felt I had done what I wanted to do there. And um, so then I freelanced uh, for a couple of more years. And then the McCarter came open. And I remember I was talking with Peter Zeister in the office of TCG. And he said, by the way, the McCarter's coming over. You don't want that, do you? <laughs> and... Uh, and uh, uh, and at that time, indeed, I didn't want to take on administration of the theater, but I said, well, in fact, that's a theater that's always interested me because of the, the environment uh, and because I've, I had been working in thrust stage for a long time, and that was a proscenium house, and there were some other, just had some feelings about that theater. And so I, I went down and was interviewed by the, the board, and I looked upon it as purely a formality. Um, as it uh, turned out, and because I was telling them, that they said, you know, what would you do if you were running this theater, and I told them what I assumed to be all the things that they would not want. The McCarter had a history of using big names, um, of sort of trying to float productions into New York, all the stuff that I really was not, it wasn't that I wasn't interested in, but I just felt they were all suicidal uh, for the running of, a, of a, uh, a resident theater. And I said, I would want a resident company, and these are the kind of plays I would want to do, and so on. And it turned out that that is precisely what they wanted to hear. Um, no one was more surprised than I. I. I mean, I went home that night and said, well, that was interesting. And was some interesting questions made me think about it, and maybe I should get back into this again sometime. And a, about three weeks later, they said, yes, we would like to do that. So, um, so that's how I ended up at the McCarter. And I've been there now for seven years, and it was a hopeless, hopeless uh, um, building, as any of you know who were there uh, prior to last May. Um, uh, a big, rafty, uh, echoey auditorium. It's not a theater, it's an auditorium. And I should say right here that I think every artistic director of a the theater always says that you have to understand there's something different about my theater, regardless of what it is. <laughs> but you do have to understand there's something very different about my theater, which is that it is a performing arts center. In fact, it is one of the, I think the statistic that is emblazoned on our forehead is that it's the seventh busiest performing arts center in the United States, Lincoln Center being the first. Odd in a town of 28,000, but of course, midway between New York and Philadelphia and with all the corporations fleeing down there, uh, it makes a certain amount of sense. What that means is that what I'm overseeing really is, yes, my main interest is a drama program, but also uh, um, a concert series that is booked for us by the same gentleman who books Lincoln Center. It's that really, it's the same concert series that Lincoln Center has. Um, a dance series, which includes all the major uh, American companies. Film series, etc., etc. So it's a much more complicated thing, and for me, frankly, much more rewarding, because I happen to love music and I happen to love the dance. So for me, it's all gravy um, that, that that's uh, built into my job. But it is different than just running a repertory theater. It's a big house. It's a thousand-seat house. Um, it means that our runs are, are much shorter than, than I've been used to, and that's sometimes a very frustrating experience. We are close enough to New York that, although I have what I call a core of a resident company, it is pretty much 
a commuter company. Most of them do commute to, to New York, although unfortunately they they get so um, attracted by the community that they, uh, and now with the new equity contracts, they make housing demands that are almost impossible to fulfill. Mm-hmm. Princeton does not have an apartment house. There's no such thing in Princeton. It's all these little houses and then uh, student housing. So housing and company is a real trick. But um, we do uh, six productions a year. As I say, there's a resident uh, sort of core ensemble, but a lot of jobbing in. <coughs> um, we are so close to New York that we're working essentially from the New York acting pool. And um, our repertory is all-encompassing, I like to think. That's, I've talked to enough. Do, do you have a second stage? Uh, we have a very unsuccessful itinerant second stage. Um, we have a thing we call stage two, and our problem is that we don't have a real home for it. So it's been at various places, and the result that has been that it doesn't have its identity. People are confused as to what they're seeing. So this year, what we're doing, we have a big, the McCarter Theater was built in 1929 in the image of a Broadway house. It looks like a Broadway house. It feels like a Broadway house. And now it's, we have completely renovated it um, from what it was. Uh, we lowered the ceiling, lowered the proscenium, put in box seats, squeezed everything in to make the thousand-seat house look like it isn't a thousand-seat house. And now it's a whole new world. Um, uh, the acoustics have been 100% improved. Mainly the contact from audience to stage has been incredibly improved. I can do plays now that I would never have dreamt of doing beforehand in that theater. Um, we're going to sort of rope off the stage house, have the audience come up there, and convert the stage into a small 200-seat house. And that will be our stage, too. And that's in, we're doing a new play by a New Jersey playwright uh, named Bruce Rogers, a play called Debut, being directed by Rob Lanchester, who's my associate artistic director, and they're in rehearsal for that uh, even as we speak. But then you see also this weekend is the Harlem uh, Dance Theater. Uh, tomorrow night is uh, the, the Governor's Awards, which is a big TV thing going on. All my set designers know that any set they build has to be able to dismantle in uh, 10 hours um, because never does anything run a full week. There's always something else in there. I, I find that exciting. I mean, you know, you can do two things. You can either say, this is going to kill me, or you can say, I find that exciting. <laughs> so I've opted for the last choice. <laughs> Mark? Um, do you play in rep when you, when you do the... Co- we're doing this season, we're doing a fall rep and a spring rep, yeah. And we opened, we did Our Town, a play which originated at the McCarter in 1938. It was first produced at the McCarter. And a play that's very dear to us and very dear to me. And we did Our Town in rep with uh, Pfeiffer's Little Murders, and we ran them alternate weeks, two views of the American experience. <laughs> uh, in the spring, we are doing Alfred Dimise's Don't Trifle with Love in rep with a new play we commissioned from Jim McClure called Napoleon Night Dreams, which is a theater piece about the Napoleonic experience seen as a dream. Uh, but they both take place in that early part of the, of the French 19th century. And then for our fifth show, we will be doing Uncle Vanya uh, marking the American debut of Georgi Tostanogov, the Soviet director who is sort of considered the master of Chekhovian drama. And um, that production will run all by itself. Uh, but, however, I must tell you, Mark, that um, we run into a big problem, which is that there's such a gap between my fall rep and my spring rep. There's almost two months there. Mm-hmm that my audiences have said, we don't like to go that long without having a show. And I, I mean, I love to hear that. That's a nice thing to hear. Um, so I think I'm probably not going to do that next year. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.
I was trying to find a solution. We're all trying still to do rep, you know, find a way to do it. And um, I was hoping this was a partial solution, but unfortunately, it was that stupidest of solutions, a solution that did not take into mind the audience uh, and their, their theater-going habit, and you want to keep feeding their habit. I mean, if you leave them two months without a show, they may decide they don't need one. Um, I was an actor for a long time and uh, also a, a real regional theater baby. I was very similar to Nagel's experience. I was suddenly asked if I wanted to direct something when I was in the company at the Guthrie. They had a second stage and uh, they lost their director or their play or something. Anyway, the, the head of that came to me and said, have you ever thought about directing? I said, absolutely not. He said, uh, he said, would you like to direct this Fugard play? I said, it was Fugard, and ended up directing a play called Hello and Goodbye, a wonderful play, with two local actors. And, uh, it, and it got wonderful notices. And I noticed that the review talked about me more than it ever talked about me when I was acting. And I thought, isn't that interesting? <laughs> but I, I had no intention of directing, and went back to acting, and just... Um, was playing Hamlet at the Old Globe, wanted to spend more time in California with some friends I'd made. Craig Knoll, the artistic director, was ill or overtired or something and was about to do a Shaw play called Too True to Be Good. And I knew I could cast all these friends I'd made in it. And I said to Craig, you're too tired, would you mind if I directed it? And he said, okay, go ahead. And that was a big success. And I loved the play and I loved doing Shaw and I loved working with these people. And, uh, and then... You know, again, someone saw me play Hamlet, who was running the Arizona Theater Company, and said, I think you should direct something. So I directed Equus. So, I mean, it all kind of, I, it, I don't know if it was my acting. <laughs> you could, like, watch me on stage and think he should direct. <laughs> or um, quite what. But um, anyway, so I literally fell into a job called the California Shakespearean Festival, which was a festival that was starting... Uh, begun by a kind of uh, a man who was a combination saint, Machiavellian, crazy man, P.T. Barnum, who somehow got my name and decided that this was it. This was the artistic director. But there were more important people involved with it. Hugh Southern was involved and Michael Langham was involved and they all kind of said, yes, this is probably good for Mark. And so I thought, well, it would be nice to leave New York. And the point was going to be that Michael would direct... uh, Romeo and Juliet, and I would play somebody, I think maybe Mercutio, and I would direct Hanging of the Shrew and be the associate director. Michael thinked out at the last minute. They had nowhere to turn, needless to say, because it was a beginning company, and they said, would you do both? And I had my first anxiety attack and said yes, and directed these two productions in a, in a, it's a strange and quite wonderful set of circumstances, because these people who were doing this knew absolutely nothing about making theater. And sometimes that can be marvelous because they just poured money onto the stage and poured money into the casting and poured money into all of the things that, you know, now that I'm, I'm running a theater and have been for seven years, I wouldn't dare put money into without a great deal of thought and care and, you know, chipping and cutting away. They just said, let's just do it. So we did these two immense productions of Romeo and Juliet and Taming of the Shrew, and this kind of B.T. Barnum person um, had meanwhile gotten Clive Barnes and 
all these critics from New York and Los Angeles and San Francisco and the Chicago press and some people from London, and I don't know how he did it, but they all came trooping on planes that he paid for to this little place in, you know, in, in Steinbeck country. I mean, the ghastliest place for a summer theater. The temperature was like 120. Is this Visalia? Visalia, yeah. And, and, you know, no one came to see the shows <laughs> because there was no money left for publicity. But they were wonderful, and they were huge, and they were operatic in scale. And, um, and that did it. I mean, somehow everyone heard that I could do these big Shakespeare plays, and everyone knew I loved doing them. And no one realized yet that to do a Shakespeare play like that, any director, no matter who he or she was, would need, I think the budget was $2 million for two plays. With none of that money set aside for publicity, for but I mean, you walked into this theater, you saw sixty people sitting there. Sometimes the audience was like this, and the curtain would go up. <laughs> like, some of the best actors in America, dressed in the most beautiful clothes by John Conklin on this incredible set, lit by Pat Collins, original music, stage fights choreographed, dances choreographed, the works, right? You know, original instruments. I mean, it was amazing. But only about twelve people a night saw this, and. Playing to armadillos. Yeah, right. <laughs> it lasted for two seasons, but, but the press was, you know, amazing about it. And it got press all over the place. And people heard that none of them came, but they heard. And um, the Arizona Theater Company artistic director uh, at, needed a sabbatical for health reasons. They asked me if I'd do that for a year. I called Peter Zeisler. Peter said, well, why don't you get your feet wet and see if you'd really like running a theater? So I did that, and I had no sooner gotten there than Hartford Stage called and said, Paul Widener is leaving. Would you be interested in interviewing? And I said yes, and I flew out. And it was, you know, very similar. I thought, I'm perfectly happy in Arizona. I had a feeling that they were probably going to let go of this artistic director, not, not for artistic reasons at all, but for health reasons, because he was quite ill. And I loved the staff there, and I loved the desert. And I thought, gee, I'm going to stay here for years. This is it. I had the, the L.A. casting pool. Um, and I felt I could do, you know, everything I wanted to do. So Hartford was kind of a, you know, a kiss-off. Yeah. Came to Hartford, boring town, you know, boring New England. They asked all these boring questions. I gave boring answers, and they hired me. <laughs> so, and uh, it was a very difficult decision to leave this. I felt a real tie to the desert that was very, very you know, spiritual, and uh, it was difficult to leave and come to New England, and it was difficult almost the whole time I've been in New England, um, and getting better, you know, because I think I'm finally, I, I finally know what I'm doing. I didn't really know what I was doing, I was just kind of doing, you know, now I feel like I... And you inherited a just renovated theater, I mean, just yeah. a, a new theater. It was a just brand new theater that Paul had supervised, yeah. designed by Robert Venturi, which is, again, full of its own particular strange problems. Jerry will attest to those. Um, and, uh, and I think partially one of the reasons Paul left, I've never really talked to him about it, uh, was that he, this theater got built, and it was twice the size of their original house which was a beautiful, beautiful house. Mary did some plays there as associate director. And to build this theater, they over-marketed. So they built a 500-seat theater in a 250-seat community, <laughs> in maybe a 300-seat community, you know? 
And suddenly Paul was faced with really having to come up with, I think, things that he wasn't all that artistically interested in. And as he was maturing as an artist, he was finding a certain narrowing of, of focus and vision of things he wanted to concentrate on, which were not populist, but were, you know, I mean, one of his last shows was uh, the cocktail party, yeah, another one was the lady from Dubuque, yeah. shows that he had a vested, vested personal interest in um, that just were not, you know, big audience shows. And that house required that. It also required enormous money in design mm -hmm. because it's a huge space for a 500 seat, 489 house. Um, which is the problem that we have dealt with for seven years, which is that there's this football field of a thrust um, in a long wharf-sized audience and a director who's basically interested in big pieces. So, and even when I have a director who's not interested in big pieces and a play that's a three-character, one-set tiny play, the design solution always has to encompass this vast, vast house, as Mary will attest to. Um, so, anyway, that's my life story. <laughs> and in the old, yeah, in the old Hartford house, the, I think it was the very limitations and the, that, yeah. that, that Paul thrived on. Yeah, it. yeah. There was an air conditioning vent, you know, in the back wall. It was, it was really about half the size of this room. Yeah. 250 people, 225 people, yeah, I think, yeah. could sit yeah. in it. Yeah, I, and, you know, I, Shakespeare's in that house would just be wonderful, I think, because the solutions you'd have to come up with would be amazing. It was more fun, and that's one of the things that I think that we live with, you know. It gets less fun because audiences demand more and more, and the more they demand, for us somehow it gets less fun. Yeah. I mean, and, and, but fun is probably a, an indulgence, uh, but it is, I mean, and that is why Paul, you know, said, mm. gee, this isn't what I went into this for. Can you guys talk a bit about uh, choosing plays? You've both said that you have these sort of large theaters in which you can't really put certain delicate, fragile pieces. Um, and I'd love if you could talk about that and also about the how much the community, how, how much the community fits into your choices. How much you take that into account? I spent an hour yesterday talking on that subject to um, our board, the board of our auxiliary organization helps out the theater called the Board of Associates. And there's always that feeling, I think, that an artistic director sort of walks along the beach and comes up with a season <laughs> or something. And I only did that once. My very first season, the very first season I ever planned, which was in Milwaukee, and it was the best season I ever planned, too. It's because I hadn't even gotten to Milwaukee yet. I was, so it could be done purely theoretically, and it was done for a resident company of 14 actors, and knowing the scenic restrictions of the old Milwaukee Rep, soon to be a new house, uh, which were sort of the same restrictions as the old Hartford House. Um, and also in those days, just from one budget, you could do that uh, very easily. And I came up with a complete, up with the season that, that I just loved. It started with the Fado Farce, and then we did the mystery plays, then we did the White House murder case for Pfeiffer, and we did Measure for Measure, we did Delicate Balance, and Journey of the Fifth Horse. And it was just it was just a fabulous season. I loved it. I've never been able to come up with another one like that because what happens is that a Rolling Stone does gather a lot of moss, a lot of interesting projects and so on begin to attach. And so you find out, I mean, you're always working two seasons ahead in a sense. With our particular scheduling problem at McCarter, we have to work almost two seasons in advance because our dance companies and concert artists have to be booked two years in advance. So we're always working with the calendar that way. But 
in ter- just in terms of the artistic choices, I mean, uh, you get there will be a director that to whom you are committed for a particular project, and then that if that's a huge project, like we're going to open next year with a huge project, and from that, the rest of the season sort of spins off. You do you keep an eye on the box office? Of course, it would be naive to say that you don't. Um, be ridiculous to say that you don't. Um, on the other hand, I do not believe in audience surveys. Uh, if you do an audience survey, what they, people will tell you what they, what they last saw that they liked. Um, you can imagine if there had been an audience survey taken saying, uh, we, have, we have three musical comedies in mind. One is, it just happened in the 40s. Uh, a, a brand new Cole Porter show, um, a wonderful new show about Hawaii, and a show about agrarian reform and the conflict with the cattle industry in the Southwest. <coughs> well, Oklahoma would never have happened. You can't do um, you can't do a survey because people don't know what the possibilities are. Yeah, yeah. You know, if if, if um, a choreographer said to me, "What kind of ballet would you like to see?" I'm not equipped to say. I would say, "Well, Elliot Fell," or you know, something that I had just loved that I'd seen, but I don't know what the possibilities are. So I really pay no attention to audience surveys. And the staff have sometimes had some, and they've always been. I said, I will tell you the answers before you read them to me, and I'm always right. I mean, you can tell exactly what they're going to say. Uh, you have to lead, but you can't be in the position of an educator. I think that's presumptuous, perhaps, uh, I mean, in, the tradi- in the academic sense of being an educator. Uh, but you do have to present new visions that people haven't seen before. You've got to. Um, on the other hand, you must always be choosing things that will engage an audience. And I think that's the most important thing. It could be of any genre, or any, as long as it will engage an audience. And if it doesn't engage an audience, then maybe it is not theater. Um, or, or, which is more likely, you fail to pull it off. Uh, um, and so it was maybe a good choice done that way, I suppose. But choosing the season, I mean, it isn't just as simple as saying, well, we'll do a classic and we'll do a modern and we'll do a, you know, a comedy and we'll do a tragedy, because it all gets mixed up with, yes, but that actor is available to me now and won't be available to me the next season and I want to do that thing that I've always wanted to do with her or the thing. So, and, um, so it gets very complicated. I've never done a season that was based on a thematic thing, you know, the theme of this season will be such and such, although... After one season in Milwaukee, someone came up to me and said, "How is your marriage?" <laughs> so apparently, I had done, apparently I had done an entire season about rotten marriages. <laughs> and, uh, I was, but I was unaware of that. That happened. <laughs> that happened coincidentally. I've never really set out to do that. We have tremendous problems uh, dealing with a huge proscenium stage and a huge house. I mean, there. It's much better now. We can do a lot of intimate... I mean, I wouldn't be doing a play like Demi says Don't Trifle With Love if I didn't feel that we could now do... Uh, and we, and um, we had an extraordinary success. I think the most extraordinary success we've had with anything I've done in the seven years ago with a new play by uh, Tom Griffin called The Boys Next Door, which was a rather intimate piece about uh, four mentally retarded adults. It just... I mean, we had standing ovations every night and people going crazy over that play. And that was a play that I would probably not have done in the old house. It was very small. And, and therefore, and, I mean, we've commissioned another play from Tom now. Um, so, I mean, that happens too. You establish a relationship with a particular playwright. But 
When people ask me, how do you pick a season, I say, well, you know, how does a painter pick the colors he uses on a canvas? It is an intuitive shot, always. You know, so I think maybe that. And I think that's why we're called artistic directors rather than something else, because a computer can't do it. Oh, yeah, a computer probably could, but it wouldn't be terribly interesting. Um, uh, put together a lot of data and come out with something. But it has to be intuitive, and, and when you put your foot in it, you put your foot squarely in it. And unfortunately... To carry on the metaphor of the painter, if a painter uh, does a rotten painting, he can throw it away and nobody but the model knows uh, what happened. Uh, when we really make a mistake, it's out there for God and everybody. And in the resident theater situation, you can't just close it and say that didn't happen. You have to run it the full number of performances. And, uh, uh, and it's tough. It's tough when you have a real turkey. Um, uh, although a lot of times what is perceived as a turkey is your favorite thing to see. <laughs> At any rate, I don't know. Now, you'll probably tell me you have a wonderful formula. <laughs> and I'm going to be awfully mad you didn't tell me a long time ago. Oh, right. Yeah. When I was in Arizona, we did a, an audience survey. To, not for us, but to make the audiences feel like they, you know, belong. <laughs> and, but what we gave them was a list of plays. No authors, just, you know, the taming of the truth. We it up. And they all chose the biggest winner was Samuel Beckett's Happy Days. <laughs> Which sort of proved once and for all that this list are. That's great. Look, this audience is asking, begging for Beckett. <laughs> anyway, the, the, the play choice thing is, you know, used to be the bet noir for me. And then I kind of like Alice going through the mirror, whatever she goes through. Uh, began to think that it, there would never come a day where I could choose the season, sit back, and make it just go. That, in fact, life was a play choice. You know, life was just constantly revising, getting scripts, hearing from playwrights, doing business, needling other people, getting availability, moving on, revising the season, etc., etc., etc. And less and less fear that I wouldn't be able to come up with something that inspired me, intrigued me, or whatever, because I realized that those things were always there. So I've kind of done a turnaround. It used to be absolutely terrifying to choose a season, then it would go through a budgetary process, then we'd have to knock some of it back. Then we'd start the season, we'd start producing the season, and ticket wouldn't, tickets wouldn't sell, so we'd have to change the end of the season. Well, changing the end of the season made the subscribers who bought into it pissed off. So then, you know, it was ghastly. And we thought, you know, we used to sit in my office saying, when will we stop doing this? When will Mark make up his mind? When will, you know, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden I thought, wait a minute. Let's give them as little upfront knowledge as we can. Let them know that they're going to have a good time here. Give them four titles, leave two TBA. Now at least we have a history of changing our minds all the time. <laughs> And most of the times when we've changed our minds, they've been very happy with the results. And, and they've gotten the picture that new plays come up when you least expected them, and new people become available and others don't, and all of that. And really, they don't... It's something else that they're upset about when you change your mind. Uh, they're not upset that they're going to see Desire Under the Elms instead of Our Wilderness, really, because they're just programmed sort of to go to a play. But... I'm trying to get them to the place 
where we can just announce it <laughs> just a little bit before we do it and tell them, now next you're going to get this and next you're going to get that. And that's beginning to happen. The last two plays of the season were supposed to be TBA and A Servant of Two Masters. But Bill Irwin, who was to do Servant of Two Masters and whom the production was going to be built around, is suddenly unavailable. And so we get to do two new plays. Um, and we have four that we like. So that's what they're going to get. Now they, even though they subscribe to Servant of Two Masters, believe me, who in their right minds, other than theater majors, are sitting around saying, oh, I can't wait for Servant of Two Masters at the end of the season with somebody named Bill in it. I mean, they're just not doing that. So um, it's... But and then on the other hand, taking into consideration the community, I'm trying to do more of because I realized that by doing a little bit of that, um, I could really go further out on a limb with other work more assuredly, okay? So, you know, this year's second and third plays, A Dollhouse and Pete Gurney's Children, which is just about to open, are very much meat and potatoes, middle of the road theater, which two or three years ago I would have said, not for us, not for me. On the other hand, Pericles, the fourth production of the season, is going to be very strange, and probably stranger, which I'm directing, because I feel now, well, all right, you got an adaptation of a Mark Twain novel, relatively straightforward, a success. You got A Dollhouse, which was an enormous success in Hartford, sold out. And you got, uh, you're getting an A.R. Gurney play about your community, Wasps. So now I can really travel, you know? I really am free. And the fourth play, I mean, the fifth play, is, is a very strange expressionistic piece by a young American writer. The sixth is also an extremely difficult, thorny piece. Um, so I think maybe they'll be all right. You know, what worries me is when we do questionnaires for the preview audiences, again, as a marketing tool, um, to let them feel as if they're sort of being a part of it. So we ask some spurious questions, like, do you believe that her choice at the end of the play was correct? Uh, would you recommend this to friends? <laughs> Um, and they're, the only thing that bothers me about the ones that are coming back from children are, are that they're saying, thank God, you've finally done two real plays in a row. You haven't been doing... I'm so, I'm so sick of all the experimental theater. And that worries me because if they're making this demarcation between real and not real, then I'm in a little bit of trouble. So I think if, if I can get them to feel, as I do, that theater is so many experiences, um, and all of them essentially experimental, whether they're the, the, the most well-made Lillian Hellman or Fado play, or whether they're a compilation of mystery plays, or whether they're Shakespeare's strangest, thorniest, you know, all's well that ends well, or whether they're something that the Wooster Group has developed. I mean, for me, walking into the theater is basically a same, the same experience each time. Dangerous. I don't know what it's going to be about. Will I like it? Will it be too long? Will I laugh? Will I be moved? Will I learn something about myself? Is basically what it's about. Well, you can have that in many different costumes, I think. Now, the problem is that we only do six plays a year. We have no second theater. And while that used to be a huge problem from my standpoint, I'm now feeling in these reduced times that 
I've had to make it a virtue, just as you were mm -hmm. talking about. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've, I've suddenly begun to think of it with David Hawkinson, our, our new managing director, as a project-oriented theater, that we do six projects a year, and we'll do them in various ways. And all of a sudden, it doesn't just seem like a theater that does six plays a year. And it means that some get more rehearsals, some go into a lab, some need less, some are chosen at the last minute, others are planned for a year in advance. Uh, and I like that. I, I'm, I'm very happy with that feeling, and I kind of now, as much as I wish I could produce four new plays in the next month, um, it's good for me that I have to choose two. You know what I'm saying? And I can produce the other two next season, or at least one of them. You mentioned the term lab. Um, the, one of the things that theaters don't have that any self-respecting corporation has is a research and development wing. And um, uh, I have finally insisted on that and have gotten, I'm very, uh, this will sound amusing to many of you, I'm very happy, very pleased to be living in New Jersey um, because it is an extremely generous state in terms of the arts. In fact, I'm sure one of the top two or three in the country. And I requested funding for just that, for just research and development. And uh, we've got that now. We do three or four weeks every year of just what I call our theater lab. We work on various projects and no performance of any kind, just working with a group of about ten actors and two or three directors on um, developing, exploring, whatever. And from that have come a number of interesting things. Um, I don't know how long that luxury will maintain, but um, I find that very important. And that is, in fact, more important to me than a stage, too, in a certain mm -hmm. way. We had something like that at Hartford a couple of years ago, a grant from the NEA, but uh, I think we felt the That's community right, didn't understand, the board didn't understand the need for that. Yeah. Or, uh, they came around. Mm -hmm. um, they, they, they're, they're, their real feelings about it seem to have come out of the woodwork, mm -hmm. and they're wondering if we can do it again. Oh, is that right? Of course, the answer is yes. <laughs> yeah, big, yeah, you brought a, a big project came out of that. A huge project, yeah. and a, we commissioned a play from our resident playwright that Mary directed, which went on to win the Humana mm -hmm. Best American Play Award, or whatever that is, and get published, and all of that. So lots came it was, out. It was very good for the... There were some public performances, although they were done on a workshop basis, and the, uh, the people who came, I think, learned a lot about what we were trying to do. I mean, about the, the fact... Applied that to the normal process. The best thing is that... Yesterday, that we had an executive committee meeting, and um, next season is our 25th anniversary season. And I said that what one of the things we'd like to do, and it's a pretty set season at this point. I know you can't believe that. But <laughs> it is. Um, and one of the one of the pieces in it would be the Hoffman project again, um, plus a commission play from the resident playwright. Both very risky things. One, a sort of performance piece thing that would be developed in front of the audience and the other, a play from our resident playwright as yet not even a glint in its mother's eye. And the board was ecstatic. That's great. So, for whatever that's worth, it's worth a great deal to an artistic director who's fought pretty many battles on the front of, oh my God, you know, what is he doing now that no one's ever heard of? <laughs> and as you say, the ideal would be, what we'd all like would be not having to announce the season at all. Mm. I mean, that would be the ideal. Yeah. Um, just say, uh, you will subscribe to a season of plays and we'll put them on. I don't think that's in the near future uh, for any company that I know of, although there are some that are getting kind of close to that. Mm -hmm. um, the, yeah, the, the research thing is, is important and the audience is trusting you, but it has to be earned. And it's a long, 
uphill road. And then your audiences change. Yeah. It's a very transient society. You know, you think, oh, I got an audience now. They're all gone, a whole bunch of new people are in there. Um, that's happening more and more throughout the country, particularly where I live. Do you both find uh, tensions between the, your, your role as a director and your role as an artistic director, administrator? Uh, I can't say that I really do. I mean, they're always a, the thing about, gee, I have to do two hours in the office every right. day just to get the mail and the phone mm-hmm. and the this and that. But there's always going to be something like that. Um, no, I've not found that to be a great problem. Some seasons perhaps more than others, but not really. I, um, I'm very pleased to have that <clears throat> that other thing that I do as well. Mm-hmm. It's curious that you say, you think that you're, you're looking into your next season, it's already pretty well set. Yeah, you know, and so is mine. January 7th. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so is mine, but you know the thing is, my press, I mean, the press department, but they're saying we've got to have it, we've got to yeah. have it. And that's yeah. the creeping thing that's coming. You are really now working a year in advance. Mm-hmm. You really are. Um, and that does cut off possibilities for spontaneity. There's no question yeah. about it. Yeah. On the other hand, the other side of the coin is that it also, like as in opera, gives you a long lead time to prepare a production. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you know two years in advance that you're going to do Coriolanus, then you've got a long time to get ready yeah. for it. Yeah. But uh, no, I don't find too much of a conflict. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't either. I used to. Uh, but just this morning, I, had a, I did a session with our technical director and our production manager and the prop people and this terrific group of people at the stage company um, on John Conklin's set for Pericles, which is $8,000 over budget. Um, And it was, at first I thought, how good it was that I had this working relationship with these professionals who, yes, work for me, in a sense. I mean, I'm the boss and I sign their checks. On the other hand, we've developed a, a relationship which is extraordinarily powerful and helpful in the process of making theater. And when I read about directors like Strayler or uh, Zeffirelli, uh, who have a staff of these people who sort of follow them around the world, or Ponell, that's basically what I've got in my own theater in Hartford, people who know my language and whose language I understand and, and who can do this kind of work with a designer of John's caliber together to make it all happen, you know, and to happen uh, under budget or within reasonable limits or whatever. I, and I find it very creative to have to work that way with those people. I mean, I literally say, tell me how much the red silk curtain is. Tell me how much the 20-foot styrofoam face is. How much is it if we break it in half? How much is it if we make it out of paper mache or something else? And they're great about, and I like doing that. And I like being with those artisans and craftspeople. Um, I am trying to stay away from the office more because I think it sort of is a, a great maw that eats my instincts. Um, so if you send a letter to me, it hardly ever gets answered. I'm terrible at correspondence. I dictate 25 letters once every two or three months. And I, I do not believe that it is an office job and I have to spend a lot of time convincing people that it isn't who work with me um, and, who, and who are hired partially because of this belief I have. Um, but, I mean, if they want me to direct, then they can't expect me to be a paper pusher as well. 
And while this sounds, I can talk to you because of directors, and I wouldn't talk to my board that way, but they'd never ask. <laughs> they wouldn't dare. <laughs> but it's a question of, you know, you, you can have a whole office working there, nine to five, sometimes nine to midnight or later. And uh, it's taken me a long time to realize it, but that is not my job. My job is on stage and in a rehearsal hall. The office is this little room off to the side where I sometimes go to dictate orders to other people to keep the theater running. I'm being severe about it, but I will do a better Pericles if I have hours of reading alone at home or listening to music or seeing plays or watching videos or talking to people. I will not do a good Pericles if I spend every day in the office for the two months prior to it dealing with little decisions that everybody can deal with on their own. Last year I did an opera in Europe that took me away for three months. And guess what? You know, <laughs> nothing fell apart. Right? Nothing fell apart. With a new managing director, half a new staff, and it was like, it was clicking away like mad. Two shows opened, and I came in for final previews. And it was fine. On the one hand, it was a little terrifying how fine it was. On the other <laughs> hand, I thought, well, this is exactly what I wanted. And they all crashed about it endlessly. And all I just did, all I did was say, look, well, look, you got it up. And long distance on the phone, in you know, 20-minute discussions, we made decisions about directors together, play choices together, talent that would be in the shows together. A telephone is a marvelous instrument for an artistic director. Um, and you don't need to atrophy at your desk. Now, producing directors on the other we were just talking about being artistic directors, and she said, uh, well, I went through a bad patch a few years ago. I think it was maybe when she was going through the divorce or something. She said, you know, I sometimes didn't get into the office till 11 o'clock. <laughs> I was like, check. <laughs> really, Zelda? How terrible. Um, because, I mean, I, I would prefer going whole days without ever being there, as you well know. <laughs> It's, it's, as you say, there's nothing more instructive than leaving mm. and finding out that they do just beautifully without you. But I always uh, organize them every year at least two directing stints elsewhere. Mm -hmm. They're usually on the West Coast as far away as I can possibly get. It's good for them, too, isn't it? Oh, I mean, sure. to not have you there going. Sure. Yeah. That with, my, with our operation, it's a little more complex because it does involve some other things as well, so I can't quite do that as much as, as much as I would like to. And also, I think I'm uh, a bit of a, perhaps a bit more uh, corresponding animal. I tend to write a couple of letters every day and uh, sort of enjoy it. But uh, I don't expect answers from, from most of my colleagues. I <laughs> <laughs> guess we'll um, questions now. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. I, I think it's something that's affecting even the personnel of the theaters. We had a we had a very depressing sort of elegiac production meeting a couple months ago because the customer said, "Do you realize she couldn't find a dresser? We needed one dresser, a, a human dresser, <laughs> um, uh, and um, she couldn't find anybody for the first time in her life." Um, because the only people available were MFAs from Yale, and would they dress other actors backstage at the Hartford Stage Company for 240 a week or whatever ghastly thing we pay? No, she wouldn't. Um, and she said, look around this room. We're all 40 or pushing it, and no one younger is coming up. And the props artisans said, 
I can't find people to build chalices. I can't find people who care about staircases built correct. I can't find people who care about carving this and doing that. All these things that sort of, for, for people like us, 20 years ago at the Guthrie, they it was jammed with these craft people who, you know, and, and actors committed to working in that area. So I think it's a, you know, the audience is reflecting the, the stage. And, and I do think there's a younger audience coming back in, strangely enough. Um, you have to make it easier for them to come in. You have to give them ways to do it. And one of them is not subscription. A younger audience is wants to buy a ticket tonight. I mean, I, I know I'm going to the theater tonight. I'm, I'm 40. <laughs> Terribly young, really. <laughs> but I know I'm going to the theater tonight. I know there are people I have to see. I have no idea what I'm going to watch. But I know at 8 o'clock I'll be sitting in a theater tonight. And, you know, subscribe. People who know what they're going to do six times a year are boring people. And I don't want them in the theater. I want people who kind of say, hey, baby, let's go to the theater tonight. What are they doing? Zap. They're there. Then we get their name and address, and we violate them on the phone the next day, and they <laughs> and sell them a season subscription. And, and, I mean, and they're younger. Those people are younger. And they're, you know, they're married or living together, or they have one child, and they're pretty affluent in Hartford. And they're starting to come in. Um, and it's just because it's suddenly easier, and it doesn't seem like this stuffy thing that people do called going to the Hartford Stage Company. Obligatory. So you can literally make it easier, not make it more convenient, not do easier fare. Oh, no, keep the fare the same, but figure out ways of... Get on the babysitter. Yeah, absolutely. Earlier curtain time, so that there's We did that, yeah. So there's a shorter break between... So they just got to have a drink, come to the theater, and then have a dinner afterwards or whatever. Yeah, we have sort of the same kind of population. And I think that's right. The single-ticket audience is the is the key and uh, it's a very it's a terrifying way to work you know we're so used to that okay great we've got 12,000 people who are strapped to the seats for this season <laughs> That's right. and um, great. I think maybe we're going to have to stop thinking about that because as you say those people are not terribly interesting mm-hmm. some of them are but a lot of them are mm-hmm. and maybe the habit will grow but no the um, that's really all we talk about in our meetings and so on about how, what are we going to do about the the youth in the theater and as you say on both sides of the stage we can't get people we're losing you know you can't get the people to do that work anymore Um, I'm not sure what they're doing instead but they're sure not going to do those things that we all did that always sounds very you know safe to say well I was avoided but I mean we did and, and we sort of enjoyed it, but that's, it's different now. They're driven to goals by all kinds of societal pressures, by their parents, by everything. They say, you can't do that. You, you know, what are you, what are you going to do? What are you going to live on? We were too dumb to think about that. The theater has to become a way of life for people, like pushing on, like renting the tape. It's more expensive, but they're finding, the younger people are finding, it seems to me, that, that it's something very special to do. But it has to be something that you begin to do as a habit. And it, well, that sounds like taking medicine. Um, it's just that way. It's not to say why you need to do a lot of concert. Theoretically, it should be the same thing as a live performer. Except that the theater appeals to the mind. And it can be a very dangerous place to put your mind. And a very dangerous place to put your heart. 
when you walk into that building and, and the lights go dark, it's as primitive as childhood. And you don't know how you're going to be manipulated and touched by a writer's mind, by an actor's mind, by a director's mind, or by the collective mind of the people around you. It's frightening, I think. Are they going to come at me? Are the ideas going to be too heavy? In, in this dollhouse we just did, you could see the men and women in the audience separate, as Nora said, sit down, well, we have a lot to talk about. You could see the whole audience look like a sea of, it looked like an <laughs> op art. And the first night, Mary McDonald said, did they all start moving when I say, sit down, Torvald, we have a lot to talk about, can't we cut that line? <laughs> and Emily Mann said, no, they all know what's coming. Mm-hmm. And it was a tidal wave of emotional feeling, night after night after night. Now, hard to, you don't get that anywhere else. You don't get that in the most wonderful film, because you are experiencing it as a group in the theater. And you know that those people around you, those flesh and blood people, are not just sitting there in the dark with their popcorn having Richard Gere's face alone. You know, it's, it's all of us doing it. So you have this cathartic group experience, and you don't get that anywhere in life anymore. You don't get it in the community. You don't get it in, in, in the forms of entertainment we have. You maybe get it in church. But it used to be much more a part of people's lives even 40, 50 years ago. And now, what I think is going to make theater happen again is that, that it's the one place where, as a group, you can feel something together. Um, I'm just curious, uh, because you said that you, that, that uh, production did very well and there were a lot of single ticket sales, but those mostly young people? Yes, yeah, mm-hmm. young couple. Mm-hmm. There's an, another thing that has to be said that for which we all share the guilt. A lot of people have been stunned for the last 10, 15 mm-hmm. years. There's yeah. been a lot of very empty stuff oh, on yeah, stage. Yeah. And they paid lots of money to see it, yeah. and uh, yeah, and and that, you know, the, uh, that begins to build up. And some, I think, a lot of people don't come just because they've been stung one time. I mean, that's a very mundane thought, but that is there. And it's a ter- terrifying obligation that you have. And I see young people coming to the door. My my heart leaps up, and then and then I clutch it and say, Oh my God, what if they don't <laughs> like this? <laughs> have I lost them forever? The other thing that's odd, ancillary to that thought, is that we produce, you know, six to twelve shows a year. Now, at once I said to my board, name six movies you saw this year you loved. And of course, no one can. Name six Broadway hits, you know, just name six shows that are liked enough by enough people to keep going. There aren't. And yet all of us who run these theaters have to come up on a six-week basis with something that makes the same audience, basically, uh, see something new and feel something different. And that is overwhelmingly difficult and, and in, in danger of making you um, sterile. You know. On the other hand, it's exactly the problem that, like, you know, the positive side is the problem Moliere's company had, it's the problem Shakespeare's company had, and the problem Brecht's company had, so it's not that awful problem, I suppose. It's probably a good one.
Yeah. We're fighting on the telephone sales excuse that audience members give when you, again, if you do phone surveys about why they don't or didn't resubscribe and say, well, it's impossible for me to predict uh, <laughs> six evenings when I will be free from my <laughs> pressing social schedule. Particularly in Princeton, I like to say things like that. <laughs> uh, um, so we decided, okay, we'll accommodate that, and we decided to do two series, uh, or actually three. One was the regular six shows. Uh, rather five shows. Uh, one was sort of the three, I guess what we would call biggies, or you know, like the Shakespeare, the big comedy, the the thing, the thing we expect to be the hot ticket. Uh, and one that was just the two new, the two the two new works, uh, and also the stage too. So these were three possibilities that you could do. So you could just do three nights, or just two nights, or you could do the whole shot. Ninety percent of the people took the whole shot. Mm. They they couldn't be said it's too confusing. <laughs> so I mean, again, an audience survey was proven to have had no validity whatsoever. That's just a handy thing to say. When, when, you know, when you ask someone, why don't you subscribe? Well, I can't possibly know what I'm doing six nights, but in fact, they want to. They would like the whole thing. We tried sort of thing like membership too. No, we would. It was too confusing. It's working a little for us. We Is just it? started it this year, and it's a side part of it, but it's it's growing. I'd love to see it work. Yeah, we have a new whole new population coming in. The corporations are all moving to Princeton, and we have this whole new young group coming in. I mean, quintessential yuppies who are coming in, and I'm hoping something like membership will be. Yeah. Well, just I want to say, are you finding we're gaining in subscription a bit, but because of this intensive, intensive telemarketing. You talk about the theater, how do we get these young people to think about that kind of Once they come, they tend to come back. That's what we're finding. No. They wanted me to. The, the marketing people wanted me to, and the advertising company wanted me to, and I said, absolutely not. I won't do it. So do you hope the program no, I think I think word of mouth. I think it's becoming this thing you talk about. If you go to the Hartford Stage Company, you, you can't go to dinner unless you go to the Hartford Stage Company because they're defiling you again, they're outraging you again, they're being nice to you again, or they're making you hate them again. But you, it's starting to turn around to be sort of the thing that you have to see to talk about. To, to, to know about, to go to. And 
That's the difference somehow. And it, it has nothing to do with the work. In front. The work is, seems to me to be mostly the same, if not even more consciously difficult. But somehow, that's what's pulling them back around. But, How long do you think? Do you think yeah. Do you think this is a phase? Or do you I don't know. No. I don't. Okay. I don't know. I don't think so. Because for the first time, we're doing this massive marketing. So, and we're, we're doing all these group sales. Well, but I mean, we're just get, getting on the telephone saying, would you like Dollhouse last night? Would you like to see children next week? Come in. And they're coming, and they're buying subscriptions. Now, the other thing we're doing is going to all these audiences that we know never come to the theater. And also this program they started called Hot Ticks, where you can get a, a, a ticket for 10 bucks the day of the performance between 11 and 2. We're doing such good business on we had to stop it because it was, we were losing money selling all these cheap tickets. But suddenly the theater is filled with black people and young people. So we're going to reorganize that Hot Ticks program, get it funded by a bigger source of money so that, in fact, I mean, it's horrifying, we can turn into more of a commercial house. I mean, it sounds like what I'm talking about is turning into a commercial house, but frankly, what I'm really talking about is, is understanding the audience patterns in the community this theater happens to be in right now, and it's a very mobile community. People are there for five years and move away. And we need to take advantage of that. It's, we aren't going to take advantage of it by having student matinees, although we're going to continue to do those, but those kids' parents are moving away in a, in a month we discovered. They're not rebuilding. They're going to go to theater in Dallas when they get there, or San Francisco, or you know, Columbus, Ohio, or wherever. But where they're not coming back in. Meanwhile, we're getting people who just got transferred from Dallas and who are kind of wondering what to do in Hartford. It sometimes takes them three years to figure it out. By then, they're transferred again. So we've realized we have to grab them on this sort of corporate level. And all of a sudden, we give theater parties. We give you know things in the lobby of the theater. We do all this stuff for them as a social event that's seeming to start to turn around. But I, I feel that for too long, we didn't take this kind of work seriously enough and that you cannot expect the audience to just like it. And that's what we thought. We thought, well, we've got this wonderful show. It has wonderful notices. Why aren't they coming? They don't know about it. They don't know about it until they're beaten over the head and until they're told it's a deal and until they're told they can do it today and until they're told that it might be fun and you know, and so now there's this enormous campaign. How are you telling People get on the phone nightly from 6 to 10 and call them. In, just call the whole Connecticut sort of valley and, you know, all the places that... And friends, we've got deals where it's like blacklisting. If you turn in five names, people <laughs> oh, yeah. you think might like us, you get a free bottle of champagne and an extra show. Well, they're doing it. All these friends are getting hit on by our telemarketers. Absolutely. And telemarketing is incredible. I mean, I don't understand. Anybody phones me, uh, I... You know, I just hang up right away. Yesterday, yeah. someone, I pick up the phone and I said, am I speaking to the head of the house? And I said, you were. <laughs> <laughs> I won't deal with it, but it's amazing how many people will. And uh, we, our subscriptions just went well once we started telemarketing. I think it's very mysterious. It's a constant reminder. If there you are in the kitchen making the whatever, the phone rings and somebody says, do you like Ibsen? <laughs> you know, now, you're not going to think about Ibsen most of your life, but all of a sudden, it's not a newspaper ad. None of us can afford television. There's somebody in your home talking about the Hartford Stage Company and getting you to think about it, about coming to it, about how they can make it easier for you. The other thing we've found is that it 
people love to tell the telemarketers what they think of the show. Oh, yeah. So there's this whole scheme the telemarketers do about, did you see uh, The Gilded Age? Did you have any problems with it? Uh-huh. Well, did you know it's touring nationally and it might go into New York? And, well, we'll certainly tell our resident playwright your feelings. <laughs> oh, of course, none of us ever hear any of that. But, but all of a sudden, it's this feeling that the audience is part of it, you know, and they're in it. And everything we're doing is trying to make them feel like it's their theater. Not in the work, not by sort of pandering, but in fact, in fact, this guy came up to me after some public relations thing in the theater. He said, I subscribe to your theater, and I just wanted to ask you one question. Could you please put a warning in the ads when you're going to do the two or three things you do that are safe? Because they just bore the shit out of me. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so, wait a minute. Great. Let me get a tape recorder. <laughs> and of course, David Robinson said, That's the only person like that in Connecticut. Don't worry, there are no more. That's not a trend. <laughs> yes. two exchanges uh, a couple of years ago with the uh, uh, Virginia Museum Theater, which is now called uh, Theater of Virginia. Yeah. Um, and uh, we, a show that we did then moved down there, and then the, they sent us up their lovely production of Raising in the Sun that they then came to us. And uh, right now in New York State, there's a, a production York, that is yeah. just going all over everywhere, playing about four different theaters. I don't remember which one it is. Yeah. Yeah. Buffalo Studio Arena. Yeah, I think it's Arthur's. I think Arthur's. Oh, it's Tony John That's right. It's Tony's production. That's right. No, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that, and it's uh, again, it's an economic reality uh, that, um, and also there's a certain, there's a kind of a nice artistic thing about that. I think for a production uh, to extend its life that way uh, and to be able to to go on, we uh, it's. Some of our theaters are so different that it's very, very difficult. Uh, the, just the architectural requirements are so different that it uh, almost defeats it. But if you can find a kind of sister house uh, to work with, um, there are a lot of possibilities there. But it's, it's an idea that we've been working on for a long time. Do you have to find sort of sister artistic sensibilities, too? I mean, oh, how of do course. You, well, yeah. you hook up with an artistic director that you feel... Uh, yeah, and my problem is my closest marriage is the one with ACT in San Francisco. I couldn't pick a place further away. <laughs> we also have identical proscenium openings, yeah, and, and yeah. you know, and, and it's, it would be just perfect. But we've never the closest. Well, we did a production two years ago called Faustus in Hell, which was a compilation of the Marlowe, the Goethe, Molière's Don Juan, and had the Seven Deadly Sins. And we commissioned from seven American playwrights, Albie and Barnes, so on each one took a different sin. And it was, you know, this is a big project. And then it was over. It ran three weeks, and that was the end of it. Yeah. And I thought, you know, well, now ACT is going to do that this right. fall. And I won't be directing it, but I mean, Mike Smeon's going to be directing it, but I will oversee it. And that, when we originally planned it, it was going to start at McCarter and then go to ACT. Then a few things happened at ACT, and things got stalled. But, um, so there's that kind of possible sharing as well, where it may not be the production, but it right. is an idea that is started by one theater, developed, and then picked up by another. 
I think sabbaticals are, are uh, sort of necessary. Um, I, as I mentioned, I was in Milwaukee for six years and really felt that I'd done what I wanted to do there and then spent two, two of the happiest years of my life uh, uh, freelancing, really, um, doing lots of funny little things, but uh, unable, really, to make a living doing that, of course, um, although saved all of our pennies during the time when I was sort of permanently employed and they're doing that again. Um, yes, I'm finish, finishing seven years now at McCarter and um, I'm really ready for a year off. Uh, question is, if you're off and I want me back, I don't know. Uh, and we're also going through a change of managing directorship right now, so that's an added problem. But I think, I do think there have to be, there has to be time off. Yeah. There is burnout. I mean, you were saying that you've never really had trouble planning a season, but there have been times when I've suddenly just said, I can't think of even four plays I want to do. I've done all the plays I want to do. You know, then the next morning, something comes, you say, oh, wow, this, that, and the other. Yeah. It's a danger, and it's a danger. It's a danger in your individual work. You know, you may begin to repeat yourself, and there are times I look and say, oh, my God. You know, I did that four years ago, and I just did it again, and I wasn't even aware of it. Um, so, the, I, I'm a great believer in travel, and uh, I schedule into my calendar travel. I go to Europe every year for maybe if it's only for two weeks, whatever. But I do it, and uh, I also, as I said earlier, try to direct in other theaters and as far flung as possible to work with new people. And that's a refresher. That's a refresher course. So, it's, but. I'm beginning to try and figure out now when I'm going to get away for really a certain extensive period of time. I, you know, on Tuesday I'm burnt out and more quit. On Wednesday I suddenly feel I'm doing the best work I've ever done in my life. On Thursday I look at it again and think I'm repeating myself. On Friday I think it's good to know that you're that good. <laughs> <laughs> on Saturday I'm burned out again, I'm going to die. On Sunday, I think tomorrow I might get a day off. On Monday, there's a board meeting and it's a new problem. And I, you know, I don't, it's hard to answer that question because I, in one sense, I feel I'm one of the luckiest people in the world. Um, on the other hand, the goddess of luck brings you lots of shit. And, if, you know, the, the joy of being able to create on an almost constant, sometimes too constant basis and to work with a group of colleagues on a daily, minute-by-minute basis is, is fantastic, but it, it takes a toll. And yet, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm a workaholic. When it stops for even a month, I, I love it for a while, and then I begin to feel as if I don't exist and as if I have no reason for being. And as much as I love not having to do anything, I love it more when I know I'm going to have to be doing something in a while, which I'm assuming is human nature, but um, it, it would be hard to give up at this point. I used to look over my shoulder all the time and say, boy, one more year and that's it. And now when I talk to people who freelance, I know I don't want to do that. When I guest direct in other places, I miss the control I have in my own theater. Um, 
very much, and I don't want that to be my life just yet. I may. I mean, I envy certain people that work with us because I see them doing projects slowly, carefully, over a year, and suddenly they bring them to fruition and, and they work on another and all of that. But I'm not someone who, who does lunch at the Russian Tea Room as a way of life. I can't bear it. I never have. The, the sort of project-oriented... I mean, any time I brush the commercial theater, it's endless months of talk, 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 talk that get absolutely nowhere. And I, you know, I'm now used to six productions. Here are the dates. Let's move, you know. Sort of the old European intendant, the opera house. Do <laughs> crazy. It's, too, it's a terrible thing. You say, "Oh God, if I just get some time off," and when you do, you say, "I'm going crazy." Yeah. But I think there's um, also I think we go through changes. I talked once with them. Uh, very fortunate to have talked once with uh, Jean-Louis Barrault, who told me that every ten years he changes his life completely. And if you look through his career, he has. Mm. You know, from a film star to a this to a that. And even in his last 20, 30 years, every 10 years, he moves to a whole new theater building and starts a whole new group. So yeah, yeah. I'm sort of a great believer in that. And um, uh, I do find that my energies are being slowly, slowly channeled away into other directions as well. And there may be another evolution, something else is going to happen. Um, I uh, can't joke, I think we're going to do another line of work. But uh, uh, it's not that so much as a different branch, perhaps. That's always in my thinking. But whenever I'm really beaten down and so on, there's that moment in the morning when you look at yourself in the mirror and say, I said, do you really want to be doing Is there anything else you would rather do? And so far I haven't found I know. any answer to that. Um, I, on the other hand, love it when I freelance other places and don't have any control at all. Do you really? <laughs> I just laugh merrily at all the problems. <laughs> I see this harried artistic director walk around and I think, oh, good, good, good. <laughs> All I have to do is do my rehearsal and put my show on. And I don't care if anybody comes to see it. I think it's great. Very therapeutic. We have time for just one more question. Yes. You come to your shores and you're in South Africa. I've been observing, obviously, quite a lot of what has been going on here. I don't know very much about each of here, but I have found that when one is talking about problems that you get into the internet on both sides of the bus today, don't you think it's probably a lot to do with the fact that we are not giving them a training there when they are still young? Shakespeare's school, children's theater, getting them involved in the theater when they are still young enough to not quite know what it's like. Because in England, and certainly in South Africa, we can do that kind of thing. That's right. Go to to see theatre, which is worthwhile, and therefore they are similar to the extent they want to go Is that happening? Well, it's certainly very easy for them to switch on the television, no question about that, and for their parents as well, and one leads to the, to, to the next. There, however, as we were talking earlier about the, the famous student matinees and so on, uh, most of us have tried very, very hard. There, I've met several people, and McCarter Theatre's been around, my theatre's been around for a long time. I've met many people who told me that their first theatrical experience ever, including my managing director, Alison Harris, the first experience she ever had in the theatre was being bused to the McCarter Theatre as a student. We bring them in constantly and on a very regular basis. 
Uh, there are also, just in the town that I live in, there are two different summer theater programs entirely for young people. There's a thing called Shakespeare Summer, and an entirely different program called Creative Theater Unlimited, where they do a whole different sort of thing. And I think schools are trying very hard with that too. But that is different than a regular theater-going habit that's in the family. That, you know, mom and dad are going to the theater tonight, of course, because it's Friday. And that does not exist uh, in this country, and I don't know any way to make that exist. And I, I question whether forced, and I'm always a little worried about busing, <laughs> you get this feeling that these yellow capsules are coming and <laughs> discharging all this young protein into your theater. <laughs> and, uh, and you hope that something will happen. But uh, it is simply not a part, it is not a way of life in America. There's no question about it. It's not like going to the movies on Saturday night not a way of life, and it is a way of life in several, although even there, as I'm sure you know, it is becoming less a part of life. Um, and I don't know a way to do it. The, the thought always is, you know, I mean, it's, uh, Hitler knew it well, get, get, you know, give, give me the youth. Um, but how you do that, uh, that's a pleasurable thing, thing to be desired, I'm not sure. Theater is a foreign art form to this country. It's not indigenous. It never was. It's European idea. I mean, the country is a European idea. Um, the country was imagined by people who then founded it, you know, and that's really, it's still being that. It's still, that's why any boy can grow up to be president, now any girl too, because it, it's, it, this country still lives in people's imagination. The root word of that is image. We're a country of images, from our signs to our television sets. Uh, and and theater requires a some sort of verbal societal interaction, which this country has basically never been about. Um, in its best moments, it's been about action, not thought. And that is our legacy. So, I mean, all of our kids get theater up the wazoo in their schools, and then I think when they leave school, they think, oh my God, thank God we don't have to go to the theater anymore, and just like I don't have to go to school anymore. It, 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 they come to it, we do children's theater, we, we all bust into our theaters in those yellow capsules, they enjoy it, they respond to it, and they don't come back. And, and in most cases, I don't think I would either, because it's, it is not a, an, an art form that is, in most cases, moving somewhere. You know? I mean, it's not as interesting as technology, because technology has all of this growth potential. You look at a computer and you can imagine the end of the universe without knowing a lot. You look at a great play, like King Lear say, and while someone educated with the, the, the verbal intelligence that's necessary to sort of deal with a play like that can see the end of the universe, another person really can't. And it seems like a long, boring evening in the theater, and why is it in verse, and why do they wear those funny costumes, and... You know what I mean? So we're constantly sort of on little cat feet trying to kind of say, all right, yes, I know where you're at, but look, maybe this is there too. Maybe there's a place there for it as well. But I don't think it's simply just doing it for them when they're younger. In fact, I think more bad theater for young people in this country has turned off audiences that I am now trying to woo back. And, but what is very interesting is that a vastly more abstract and aesthetic art form has grabbed the young audiences, and that's the dance. Mm -hmm. uh, 
which I feel very strongly because of Macarty we have all the, you know, the biggest event that we had last year was uh, 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 Sankajuko, the, the Japanese, team. I mean, the place was sold out for that. Um, and the audiences were young and they were vibrant and they were exciting. I'm so mad it just killed me. I sit in the back and say, why can't I get these people? You know, I mean, do I have to put on rights powder to get these people? What is it? Um, the dance, which is a very abstract form in a sense, has caught their imagination. Uh, right. Linear thought. Right. Right. The other thing you got to remember, Nagel, is that they played for two nights and you've got to run a flea in her ear for a month. Right. Let's face it. I mean, you know, it, it bugs me so much in Hartford because there's this Hartford Symphony, the Hartford Opera, the this, the that. They all perform three nights and I do 42. Yeah. And consequently, they, they can fit half my audience in and sell out for something quite odd. Whereas I do something quite odd and it's got to keep going for five weeks and it's got to keep filling the house. Yeah, but I just saw a whole different group of people. I mean, I saw oh, people who had not even yeah. been once. And I bet, you know, if, if maybe if we keep doing the further out things, there are enough of those people to keep filling the house. Yeah, oddly enough, that may be the clue. Yeah. So we'll end on that hopeful note. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Again, this is Susan Stroman, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage, made possible through support from stage directors and choreographer society, the National Theatrical Union celebrating five decades of uniting, empowering, and protecting professional stage directors and choreographers. Visit us online at sdcweb.org. This online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theater is made through the words of the people who make theater. Visit them online at americantheaterwing.org.